Welcome to Parenting the Intensity, where we'll talk all about how we can drop the general parenting advice that doesn't work with our emotionally intense kids anyway, and let go of the unrealistic expectations society puts on us as parents. Together, we'll find solutions and ideas that work for you and your kids. Chances are, deep down, you know what they need, but you need a little encouragement to keep going on harder days and permission to do things differently and help you fully trust that you already are a wonderful parent to your exceptional but challenging kids. Today's episode is all about food sensitivities, which can be one of the cause of emotional intensity because when kids are feeling very intensely some discomfort or pain they can definitely be intense but not necessarily be able to explain it and to talk with us about that we'll get Elizabeth Yarnell who is upset with obsessed sorry <laughs> with inflammation the hidden kind that is behind almost every symptoms of pain, discomfort, emotion, and dysfunction, and especially those symptoms that characterize autoimmune and other inflammatory disorders. The kind of chronic inflammation that can be challenging for medical doctor to understand and or successfully manage. Based on her career as a traditional naturopath and certified food sensitivity therapist, she founded the Inflammation Academy to empower anyone anywhere to reclaim control over how they feel today and tomorrow through non-pharmaceutical lifestyle changes. Her upcoming book explores the connection between chronic inflammation, multiple sclerosis, and other chronic conditions. She's an award-winning cookbook author, TEDx speaker, and patented inventor who frequently appears in online summits, on podcasts, and on live stages. Elizabeth was recently featured in The Strange Pin, Strange Pain, sorry, docu-series alongside luminaries such as Dr. Tom O'Brien. On the side, she has taught digital storytelling skills to thousands of elementary and middle school students through online and in-person programs. Uh, this episode today is a two-part episode, and the next part we will uh, talk more about Elizabeth's book that makes what we'll talk about today doable in our busy life. So welcome, glad to have you Elizabeth uh, today. Um, we'll, we'll talk today about some things that can be causing um, kids being intense um, and it's food sensitivities. And I know from experience myself and a few friends that can change life when you pinpoint uh, food sensitivities. So I'm really glad to have you over. Would you like to introduce yourself to the podcast community? Absolutely. Anouk, thanks for, so much for having me on your podcast. And and introducing me to your listeners. I'm really excited to be here because this is one of my favorite, should I say favorite, um, favorite topics to talk about, about really how food sensitivities and our food choices can affect how our kids act and behave and learn and grow and, and, um, and respond to us. And, and really, um, food sensitivities are an overlooked piece of the puzzle when it comes to parenting and 
um, I know we'll get into it even before we started recording. We just couldn't stop talking about this. <laughs> so we'll talk about a lot of things. And one of the things I wanted not to make sure I don't forget to hit on is how our parenting and our um, especially current parenting practices of consequences for behaviors can be really misdirected when it comes to the intense child. For sure, for sure. And if the cause is a food sensitivity, it's just pointless. Yeah. Because we're basically punishing someone to being sick <laughs> for being sick. Yeah. For for something that they can't control because it's it's a chemical process that's happening inside their bodies. Definitely. So would you like to share a little bit of why you're doing what you're doing? Yeah. So um, let's see. My parenting journey began with my oldest son and I had this amazing pregnancy that was full of, of pure whole foods. And I was so excited. And, and, um, and then when I was nine months pregnant, my neighbor threw a baby shower for me and I wasn't thinking, and I ate a piece of, um, of Turkey that came from the honey baked ham store, a spiral sliced roll of Turkey and it gave me listeria and listeria is a bacteria that likes to take up residency in the placenta mm -hmm. and it can cross through the umbilical cord and it causes stillbirth um so i was once i realized what had happened which was after a recall notice in a new the newspaper um i went into the hospital and they pumped me full of IV antibiotics four times a day. They made me, they, um, it, what's it called? I had to move into the hospital for a week basically so that they could flood me with these antibiotics to try to kill the listeria. And the good thing was is that my baby was not a stillbirth. Thank goodness. Um, but he was born and he was really sick from day one. And, you know, as a pregnant person in America, you don't get a lot of postnatal care for you as a person. Mm -hmm. um, the baby gets lots of visits and, and vaccinations and things like that. But as the mother, you don't really know what's happening. And nobody, nobody during that time had talked to me about, well, you know, if you flood the baby with antibiotics, they're, you're going to wipe out their microbiome. Maybe we just didn't know about the microbiome back, back in then, the yeah. early 2000s. Um, but he was sick from the get-go. He did not sleep for longer than 30 to 40 minute stretches at a time for six years. Yeah, that's he hard. would, uh, he would vomit, uh, I don't even know, several times a day. And this was beyond babyhood. He didn't stop until we figured this out when he was six and a half. So for six years, my, my son, I still look to him to say he's a champion vomiter. He can vomit really anywhere and just kind of move on with his life. Um, and on top of it, he had this terrible constipation, like really painful. Sometimes the poor child would go two weeks between bowel movements and he would just be in continual pain. His stomach always hurt him. He didn't really have the vocabulary as a two-year-old no, to tell us what was going on. Um, in fact, it took me years to really put it together that it was acid reflux that was waking him every half hour, 45 minutes. 
Um, none of the doctors could help us. We took him to pediatric GI clinics. We had his his records sent all over the country to gastric specialists. We um, did a abdominal x-ray to see if maybe there was something physiologically abnormal. Mm-hmm. There wasn't. Um, we even had his DNA mapped and nothing helped us come to any conclusions. Oh, the other thing that he had that was unusual was he has a lacrima and that means that he doesn't make tears. Oh, okay. So your mother, you remember like in the very beginning, the first week or so babies don't really mm-hmm. make tears. Yeah. But and then they so, start having tears and then it, then it was it just tears or all, because I know there's a, like all fluids in the bodies are like sweat and things like they, they, there's no fluid at all. Was it that or just tears? Just tears. And okay. When he was 10 months old and we were at a baby playgroup one day and I noticed all the other babies had like wet faces from their tears. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, we've never had a wet face. I think I was still waiting for the tears to come in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's cried. your first baby. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. And so, um, so he has this thing called a lacrima. And later on, I learned that tears are actually formed very late in gestation, like in the ninth month, probably. So that might have been something that was disrupted mm-hmm. um, from this, these antibiotics, this intervention that I had. I still think, thank God he's alive, right? Yeah. He came out alive, but it was very, um, very tough. These early years, he fell off the height and weight charts. He loved of to course. eat, but he would throw up everything he ate. So um, when you're constipated, you don't really want to eat. (laughs) So he wasn't growing. He wasn't thriving. Um, He had a lot of emotional issues, um, a lot of temper tantrums. He got in trouble a lot when he started school and preschool. um, And um, he was a good kid. He was a sweet kid, but he just couldn't seem to have times when he just couldn't control Mm-hmm. what was going on in his body and and I would say to him you need to stop doing that and you need to maybe take yourself up to your room so until you're ready to come down and and interact with people again and mm-hmm. and he wouldn't be able to stop and then about 45 minutes later he would burst into tears and he would say mom I heard you telling me to stop and I wanted to stop but I, I, I just couldn't I couldn't stop yeah 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 I I think lots of our listeners will <laughs> totally relate to that story, kind of story that kids try, but they just can't calm down. It's out of their exactly. control. Yeah, really. Out of their control. And he couldn't figure out, like, sometimes it would erupt in like a rage and sometimes it would erupt in violence and, and other times it would just be, you know, what we might characterize as misbehavior, you know, mm-hmm. or or lack of attention in class, things like that. So it was, um, it was uh, frustrating, but for me, the the worst part was realizing that if I have a child who doesn't poop, he is not going to live long. Because if you don't release the toxins from your body, your body becomes toxic and mm-hmm. that shortens your lifespan. Oh, I've never heard of that. Okay. Not really encouraging. 
No. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and definitely troubling when you're a parent and you're trying everything. Clearly, you've tried everything. <laughs> All specialists and nothing works. And it's so disempowering and like discouraging when you're faced with a child that is clearly in pain because you just you cannot not be in pain when you're you're in that situation but like also i think the relationship between um the, the behaviors and the pain is often overlooked we don't necessarily make the connection easily that the kids might just be in pain and that's why they're acting that way because young kids don't say i'm in pain <laughs> Right. They don't have the vocabulary and they don't realize, you know, what is normal. Like no. other people don't feel like that. Um, so, yes. And uh, it's become so emotionally wrought, right, as a parent to 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 witness your child going through this and realizing that you can't help. I mean, by the time we finally figured out what was going on, the only thing I knew for sure was that he wasn't deficient in Miralax. Like yeah. <laughs> more and more quantities, bigger and bigger amounts of Miralax were not solving the problem. No, was not making poop more. <laughs> was not making him poop more. And how did you figure out what was uh, causing all of it? Well, finally, um, after one day when he vomited in the lunch line in kindergarten and they called me to take him home and I'm like, I was in the middle of something and I'm thinking to myself, He's fine. He'll vomit. He'll just go back to class. <laughs> he vomits all the time. You don't understand. Um, but of course, I went and picked him up. And I'm like, this is and he had this terrible stomach ache. Of course, he hadn't pooped in days. And, and, um, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm running. I have no more ideas. So I thought, well, I'm going to take him to see a naturopathic doctor. And I, it was hard to find one in those days. And I finally, I found one and I took him in and she said, you know, I really think this maybe sounds like food sensitivities. And I said, but you know, he doesn't have anaphylaxis or hives. And she said, well, those are food allergies. Mm -hmm. She said, food sensitivities are when foods cause inflammation in the body and it manifests in a lot of different ways may not be hives, it may not be anaphylaxis, um, but a lot of different ways. And some of these ways could be what you're seeing with your son. And I thought, okay, well, it's a little pricey to do this test. Of course, insurance doesn't cover anything like this. No. And, um, but, um, but I don't, this is my last, yeah. my last hope. You're desperate at that point and anything would <laughs> would do. Like you're you're willing to try anything, I guess. And I just want to stop you for a second. Can you explain just mm -hmm. a little bit what inflammation means for people who might not know? So inflammation means um, what happens when the white blood cells, they are our body's soldiers. Their job, the job of the white blood cells is to circulate through the body and find any foreign invaders, which typically are virus and bacteria, and then eliminate them. Um, and they do this by, by marshalling the body's resources. And those three resources are um, antibodies, um, which are good against bacteria, um, in heat, which causes fever, which kills viruses. Viruses don't live in high heat. 
and um, inflammation. And inflammation basically immobilizes the, the invaders. So inflammation is, we tend to think of inflammation as something visible. For instance, when I twisted my ankle in a mm -hmm. jazzercise class and my ankle blew up like a, like a grapefruit, like that, that's a very visible inflammation. And that, that kind of inflammation is the right kind of inflammation. It comes from an injury. It's intended to immobilize the joint to allow that injury to heal. And then it recedes. And now my ankle is not swollen anymore. Um, but the kind of inflammation I'm talking about is what I call hidden inflammation. Mm -hmm. It's inflammation inside the body. It's not visible necessarily to the naked eye, unless, unless you know what you're looking for. Um, but it's most, lots and I would say lots and lots of people, at least one in every three people are walking around with lots of inflammation in their body and you wouldn't know it no. except for the fact that it causes symptoms. Mm -hmm. And really all symptoms are due to inflammation at the root. So no matter what your symptom is, whether it's constipation or diarrhea, or it's um, uh, eczema, or it's uh, asthma, or it's any type of, it's really anything that is negative going on in the body is due to inflammation. And so once I um, figured this out and learned about this with my son, I started learning more about inflammation. I went back to school, I became a traditional naturopath, um, and really focused my whole career on inflammation. Um, this all kind of to go back a little further, a couple years before three years before my son was born, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which is an inflammatory condition. Mm -hmm. uh, all autoimmune conditions are based in inflammation. Mm -hmm. All symptoms are based in inflammation as well. And that's what got me started on, on recognizing that inflammation is behind everything. And that if we focused on inflammation rather than the symptoms, then we would have more success because we would, we would be addressing the root of the issue, not yeah. just what we see on the top. So instead of giving Miralax, you try to reduce <laughs> so the inflammation. Instead, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Instead of like drowning to... in Miralax. <laughs> right, right. Especially if it doesn't right. work. <laughs> right. Um, so and basically Miralax... you were saying like you got a test for, for your son to figure that out? That yes. Pointed so to this is, yes, this is what introduced me to the food sensitivity testing world. And um, today, you might see a number of food sensitivity tests, but most of them are looking for antibody creation, which mm -hmm. is misleading when we're talking about customized anti-inflammatory diets. So those are yeah. a waste of time and money. It's, I would never suggest one of those. Is, the, is it the one that is done for celiac disease? Something is similar, but... So that, yes, that's a very specific test. And mm -hmm. so one thing that you can think about is that um, if we're looking for antibody creation in a test, that means you have to have had exposure to that item within a relatively recent time. So okay. for instance, if you were to go and get someone tested for celiac disease, you would have to make sure they were eating wheat mm -hmm. in the two weeks leading up to the testing period, or else it might not turn out 
you might not be able to see if there's a problem. Okay. They so might basically, not create these antibodies. Yeah. So basically, if you want to test for any possible thing, you would need to eat every possible thing in the last two weeks, which is kind of impossible. <laughs> totally impossible. And you might feel terrible because yeah, maybe yeah. you're reactive to a lot of those things. Yeah. So the test that I use still to this day is the gold standard of food sensitivity testing. And it's called the MRT, the mediator release test. And so it looks for mediators instead of antibodies. Now, mediators are released by the blood cells in response to what they deem to be a threat. And the most famous mediator we all know is histamine. We know that if we have a poison ivy experience or a bee sting and we take an antihistamine like Benadryl, mm -hmm. that we can experience some relief from the swelling, which is the yeah. inflammation that's causing us pain from that encounter. Mm -hmm. um, but histamine is only one of 80 or more mediators that can be released by the bloodstream. So we don't want to just focus on histamine. We want to see what what triggers that those mediators to be released. We don't care really which mediators are being released. They all cause inflammation. They all, all cause symptoms. So if we can identify, and we can with this MRT test, um, which foods or substances um, trigger mediators to be released, or in other words, trigger inflammation in the body, and we can adjust and create a diet that not only doesn't include those items, but only includes items that we know don't trigger inflammation in the body, then we can pretty rapidly, pretty quickly remove inflammation. And it's amazing. For my son, once we got this test done, and we took the results home and I looked at them and, and really still to this day, I've done hundreds of these tests on people. And this is still the worst. <laughs> he was reactive to fully one third of all the items that we tested. And wow. so at first, at first I'm like, okay, well, this is going to be Jeremy's shelf in the pantry and his shelf in the fridge and, and the rest of the family, we're going to keep eating the way we always have. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, that leads That's very not quickly working. to mom, mom having a nervous breakdown. Right? I'm sure <laughs> I can just imagine it like, yeah, no, no, not going to happen. <laughs> so just soon, making I, sure I, everybody, <laughs> everything stays there. At just, just starting with that seems like a nightmare, but then having a child eating countly different things than the rest of the family. And if the rest of the family is eating fun things that the child, can, <laughs> that that's just not going to happen. Like might work for adults. Like I, I have food sensitivities and I restrict right. myself and even <laughs> I have some trouble not eating things I should not be eating, you know? <laughs> so a kid's right. it's not going to happen. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I always counsel people. I'm like, you know what? The best thing to do is decide that the whole family is going to follow this diet in solidarity with the mm -hmm. child. So every meal is going to be um, safe for the child and totally healthy. Nothing's going to be weird. It might be a meal of like, broccoli rice and chicken mm -hmm. um if those things are safe for the child yeah it's not so the same not for everybody it's really tailored to every per person food sensitivities like there are specific ones right right but you know if the rest of the family isn't in crisis like the child is they're probably fine with broccoli rice and chicken 
Yeah, for sure. So, <laughs> it's all going to be unless it's their food. trigger. No, it should it should work for everybody else. But uh, you know, and that's like a whole nother story if you have more than one yeah. person in the house that yeah. is in crisis. But you'll you'll address them one at a time anyway. Okay. And what would you like? You named a lot of things that your son <laughs> add. Is there other like maybe the most common? thing to look for like if parents are wondering does my child might have food sensitivities what are the the most common or the thing that they should look for and to make them think they should reach out and find information more information about that yeah so I think what I see most commonly with kids is constipation I they're so constipation is so common in our modern world with kids, especially. So if your kid isn't pooping every day, and as a parent, I'm going to say it is imperative, you know, how frequently your kid poops. There were several years that that my son was not allowed to poop without allowing me to look in the toilet before he flushed <laughs> because he would lie, right? Because yeah. he knew I wanted him to poop yeah. because constipation was his issue. So I would I I had to look and it actually was a great laboratory experience for me to see what poop looks like in a constipated body or in an inflamed body mm -hmm. and then how it looks when you come down from that inflammation and then how freely it flows when you're not inflamed. But let me say that not only poop, but diarrhea. So if you have a kid who has diarrhea or fluctuates between the two, those are inflammation, um, headaches, that's inflammation, um, uh, skin issues like eczema, psoriasis, yeah. that's lots, or... lots of kids uh, have eczema as the young kids. And would you yeah. say like those symptoms needs to be there since birth or close or they can no. appear anytime? Yes, they can appear anytime. Um, as we live on this planet, our gut evolves and our microbiome um, is constantly changing. And depending on our lifestyle and our history and our environment, that will change our gut in many, many ways. Um, also, parasites are really much more common than we have been led to believe. And I work with lots of people, even moms of toddlers who find worms in their baby's diapers, things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've, <clears throat> I had that when I, not myself, <laughs> but my sister, when <laughs> she was young, we had that a few times. It's not Asking fun. Asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was not fun. And I had to take the same medication as, as preventive and it was disgusting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm aware. And there was some at my, my daughter's daycare recently though. So we had to check for it. It's, it's not a fun thing to do. <laughs> No, no. So the parasites can be there or they don't have to be there. Um, there can be a lot of a lot of things that lead up to it. But I think really the the most common cause of these issues is probably our Western diet. Yeah, it's, it's our over processed yeah. foods. Yeah, there's not lots of vegetable and fruit like natural vegetable and fruits. And when there's so often they've been picked up, not ready like they're still well not only that not only the the 
um, reduction of nutrients in our foods, but our overprocessed foods, they're full of chemicals and additives and artificial colors and artificial flavors and, and artificial sweeteners. All of these things are toxic to the human body. We evolved on this planet to eat and thrive on the foods and animals really that grow here. Mm-hmm. And we were never, evolution never predicted that we would start eating things that we dug up from two miles underneath the earth's surface, petroleum, and all of these things are based in petroleum. True, true. It's definitely like a lot of, yeah, a lot of things that we were not eating a hundred years ago, for sure. (laughs) Right. And if we wonder where a lot of this came from, because it didn't exist really before the industrial revolution, Mm -hmm. multiple sclerosis really didn't exist before the industrial revolution either. Um, and that was, you know, now it's so, so common and becoming more common every day. Over a million Americans have MS today, mm-hmm. considering in, in 1890, there were none. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm always wondering when we talk about that, like, is it because they didn't know it existed, so they never diagnosed people or was it really not existing at all? <laughs> it's always something I'm wondering there is like, or like kids with food sensitivities were just dying younger. So we didn't know, like, is there another, like the situation was different or do we have like, is there a way to test for that in like other, like old data to know now? Well, certainly um, there were physicians who kept records and they kept records of mysterious symptoms in their patients. And that's how we can really know that before the late 1800s mm-hmm. there really weren't records of multiple sclerosis okay. um there were records of things like celiac disease as far back as the the pyramids in egypt mm-hmm. on the walls of the pyramids there were records of them okay. um, but they didn't know what it was no and the, the um, symptoms so- were there in the notes but there you okay that's very really interesting right. to see like that some of those just appeared at some point in history it's always well you know our world radically changed with the industrial revolution yeah definitely lots of we started of polluting changed. right yeah. we started polluting in ways that never happened before our pollution used to be cow poop mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden it's it's smoke and and particulates in the air mm-hmm. and in the water supply and um that we're breathing that we're eating and then as soon as we started adding it to our foods, which is really horrific to think about who started doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, food dyes, when they were first brought up before the fledgling FDA in the 1930s, they were sourced from coal. We used coal to color foods and really? now they're sourced from petroleum and they've really never been adequately tested for um their effect on human health, especially in the amounts that, that our kids are getting them. Can you think Mm of, I just always think of fruit loops because (laughs) what is a food that has like every food dye in it? (laughs) I think the new ones I I saw recently, they have natural dyes. Now they change colors anyway. Like they're not the same color (laughs) they used to be when I was a kid. They're much more like pale and and I've read it's not it's not now it's natural food diet. I don't know exactly what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> so there's a whole loophole in the um, in the food world where you can call something natural, mm-hmm. something like natural flavors. You can say, oh, 
look at there's this carbonated water and the only ingredients are water and natural flavors. It must be better for me than soda pop, mm -hmm. except for those natural flavors likely have 30 chemicals inside mixed in this natural flavors hmm. label. So um, sometimes yeah. it's better, but really there's so many examples in so many places everywhere that we're getting food dyes in from our vitamins, from our um, drinks, from our foods that we're eating, um, in things you wouldn't even think of ketchup and mustard have food dyes and food artificial flavors in them. And um, just down to the basics of the foods that we're eating, yogurt, I can't even tell you the artificial sweeteners and and artificial flavors and colors in in a regular typical cup yeah, of yogurt. Something that should be healthy. Like we generally think of yogurt as something healthy to give our children as a snack or as a dessert, like compared to ice cream, for example. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So this I think a lot of those are the culprits of yeah. what's going on in our food supply. And I think a big first step is to try to uh, return to a whole foods based diet, because if you're eating whole foods and by a whole food, I mean a food that is in the same form as it was when it was picked off the tree or out of the ground or even off the animal mm -hmm. um, hasn't been processed, then you have a better chance of staying away from all of these artificial additives and preservatives that are added into our foods. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, I, I think that's a, uh... We'll, we'll circle back to that because the first thing that comes to my mind when we think about that is the time that it takes <laughs> to cook from <laughs> those ingredients when we have little times we are overwhelmed with our all, everything's going on but I think you have you have a resource for that so we'll circle back to that later um, excellent I just want to I wanted to ask like do you see most common food sensitivities like we hear often about gluten and lactose to be like the most common one is it something that you see in your practice also that if parents are wondering they could start testing those for example or do you think it's not worth doing that so when my son was suffering and i thought okay well let me see what if i take out take out wheat or dairy or corn or soy from his life would he get better and i would do that for a week or two and there wouldn't be any radical changes. And so I think, oh, well, it must not be that. But when the truth was, there were just so many other things mm -hmm. that were causing him issues. Some of his favorite foods were causing inflammation in his body, like broccoli, lemon and garlic, things that we think are so healthy mm -hmm. and that we were so proud of him. His favorite food at six years old was broccoli. But it turned out When he ate broccoli, he got constipated, which is kind of the opposite of what you would assume would happen yeah. with broccoli. Yeah, there's a lot of fiber in broccoli. So. <laughs> so what I've learned is that constipation really has nothing to do with fiber. It really doesn't have anything to do with hydration. Um, the things that we think and that we're told are solutions for constipation, if it's a food sensitivity issue and there's inflammation going on in the colon, It's not going to be solved with more fiber. So that that's the the end. Fiber would be the answer for someone who would not have a balanced diet and not enough fiber, basically. But not with. I don't think someone, extra fiber is ever the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer is whole foods, not extra fiber. Um, 
you know, again, we did not evolve. Our our ancestors did not have to eat extra fiber to poop. No, <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't have to eat extra fiber to poop either. What I've realized is that when there's constipation, it's because there's inflammation in the colon. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the colon, it's like this long tube. And if you think about like a tube that we take in a swimming pool, um, that maybe we might blow up an inflatable tube. Mm-hmm. And when we blow it up, like the outside of the tube gets thicker as the air gets in it. And there's still like a, a hole in the center, like a donut. But as you blow it more and more and more, that hole gets smaller and smaller and smaller because there's so it's so puffy on the walls. And that is what happens in our colon. And so when we reduce the inflammation, those walls um, deflate and become more normal size. And now you have a hole that poop can come through. But when they're, they're inflamed and they're so puffed up with inflammation, you can't fit anything through there. Okay. It doesn't matter how much fiber you have. Once I, once I had given my, my six-year-old six X lax squares and he still didn't poop. He just got senna poisoning. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's not good. <laughs> That was before and, I realized what was going on, right? Yeah. And you said that some of his favorite food, basically you had to take out of his diet. How did that go? <laughs> um, so so this is one of the strategies I teach in my clinic when I work with kids is make a deal with your kid, depending on how old your kid is, right? If your kid is three, they're just going to eat whatever food yeah. you have in the house and you give them, present them with. They can't go out and buy their own Pop-Tarts or anything. No. But if they're older then like my six-year-old, then you can negotiate with them and reason with them. And so I always suggest uh, making a deal. Look, we're going to try this for, and I look ahead and see what holiday is coming up in about Mm. a month or two. We're going to try this through Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And if by the time Thanksgiving rolls around, you're the same as you are now, then we're going to say this didn't work and we're going to have a huge feast and we're going to eat all the foods that you haven't been able to eat and we'll figure it out by then. And if we're just going to make it to Thanksgiving. And then I also believe very strongly in bribery. Right? <laughs> so I'll buy you this video game and um, yeah, you're going to agree to eat. Not inside. Like I, I, I always <laughs> prone like motivation from inside, but for something like that, there's no motivating a child from their, from themselves. Like it's not something that they will be motivated to do. Like well, ask them to, they don't know. Yeah, exactly. They cannot understand it for even like, I, I can say that I've been, I know for, I've been known for a lot of time that my older one is uh, sensitive to dairy that for me, that's clear. Um, And he's used to when he's sick, we we take dairy out of his diet and it helps. So that's been easy, but I'm pretty sure gluten is, an, is a problem too now, but that's another story. <laughs> it's well, deep and, and he doesn't want to try and take that out of his diet. <laughs> so the other, the other strategy is you have to provide a good replacement, something that is delicious Mm-hmm. and a worthwhile substitute. So that that might mean that you have to do some experimental baking and cooking. Um, I have a whole database that I use with, in my clinic and I offer my um, clients that of cookies and cakes and pies and, and treats because first of all, a life without treats is a sad life. Yeah, um, <laughs> totally. And, 
right? I want to have a cookie too. And I don't, I can't eat the wheat and I don't want to go through my life feeling like I could never have a cookie again, but mm. I can whip up a batch of my hazelnut flour cookies and they're delicious mm -hmm. and they're cookies and they're all safe for me. They don't cause me inflammation mm -hmm. um, because I know exactly what's in them because I made them. Yeah. So the idea is not to take everything out of the diet, but to replace with some things that are safe, basically. Exactly. Exactly. Because I certainly don't want to raise a generation of children who feel deprived all the time, because if you feel deprived, then you binge yeah. when you have it's exposure. It's a problem with the diet culture that we have. It's people right. like are depriving themselves and then they eat too much. So it's a cycle that never ends. And that's not what we want with the kids, especially if they're going to binge things that makes them sick. <laughs> Right. And then, you know, rewards are great, too, because like even for myself, if I've put on some weight and then I take it off, I might reward myself with a new dress. Makes sense. Kids are yeah. the same, right? Yeah, there's yeah, nothing yeah. wrong with rewards and there's nothing wrong with incentives. And and honestly, bribery, too, can help. With kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's a motivation. Like You cannot have the, the broccoli that you love so much. Um, not sure lots of parents would say that, but... <laughs> <laughs> and did you find that kids crave the food they're sensitive to or not necessarily? You know, sometimes kids will crave the things they love. Sometimes they'll hate the things they're sensitive to and they've been forced to eat it or mm -hmm. they're just assumed that this is what they should eat. Yeah. Um, but it's very hard on your own to make correlations between Yeah. what you eat and how it made you feel, especially because food sensitivity reactions can take up to four days to manifest. So sometimes it's not what you ate this morning. No. It's not what you ate yesterday. It's what you ate the day before the day before yesterday. Oh, interesting. Real interesting. So that can be kind of tough without some yeah. guidance and support to figure that out. And certainly impossible for a kid to make that connection. No, that's for sure. <laughs> and did you find that once kids are on that diet and like and it makes them feel better for a little while is it easier to keep them on those diet um yeah, oh yeah because once you the hardest part is the beginning when you're like trying to figure out okay well is this safe for my for my kid or now it's my whole family right is this is this food item safe? And you'll read all the way through all the ingredients and you'll get to the last one. You're like, oh, but it has that one thing that we can't have. <laughs> like, okay, well, I guess this isn't okay. And then, but once you figure that out and you figure out the brands and you figure out the stores where you can purchase those brands, it becomes easier mm -hmm. um, and yet less time consuming. And then there's all kinds of, you know, shortcuts that you can do. You can bake things in batches and freeze them so that you don't have to bake cookies every week, but you can yeah. pull out a batch of frozen ones. And Because nobody has time for, for that. <laughs> I'm so glad you joined me today and took that time out of your intense life to focus on finding a new way to parent that works for you and your kids. To get the episodes as soon as they drop, make sure to subscribe to the podcast And please leave a rating and review so other parents can find it too. Also, check out all the free resources on my website at familymoments.ca so you can take action on what's the most important for you right now. And take a deep breath, keep going. We're all in this together. Mm -hmm.